You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, for uh, uh, for this day, for our many blessings, we give you thanks. Um, thank you for our church, uh, uh, for gathering here, and uh, for your word, Lord. Uh, open it now. Um, uh, forgive me for my many sins, and uh, let your word go forth. Uh, and uh, fall on the ear in the way that we need to hear it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm continuing this uh, series in John. I'm going to extend it by a couple of weeks just so I can slow down a little bit. Didn't say what I wanted to say in the way I wanted to say it last week, I thought. Go back to this Newton hymn um, that kind of stumbled upon. Spent some time thinking about that a little bit more this week. Uh, I want to slow down and think about that because I think it contains... One of the most vexing questions, and it's related to what we were just talking about, Ellis, um, of uh, uh, what do we do, either with ourselves or with uh, probably every one of us as somebody that we love, and maybe it's you, but but a daughter, a son, a brother, a parent, um, a friend, a neighbor, that you know, we feel overwhelmed, um, title, but, you know, that you may believe, and we've got this sense of, you know, gosh, I believe. You know, help my unbelief, and that's always my prayer. But it's also like, what did I do in order to be given this gift of faith, this gift of belief, this freedom um, of, uh, uh, of self, to, to worry about myself less? Uh, and yet, friends of mine, family members of mine seem to be not not on the same receiving end. And I think Newton squares up to that. And I want to hear that too. And I think that's in this, going back, this is, um, can this be the Christ? That's that's good. That's going to be really John 6, 7, and 8, which we may get to, probably not. I really want to go back and think a little bit more about John 5. The healing at the pool, uh, where there's the invalid of 38 years. And Christ asks him, do you want to be healed? Um, and I think that's the the, the crux of it in this question of um, of how then do we believe? How do we answer that question and say yes? <laughs> how do we answer the question and say yes, I want to believe. I want to surrender my life to you um, and be drowned in the pool and be raised in new life. Because um, I think that's a real question for a lot of us um, as we think about people who we love or maybe even ourselves as we're trying to make sense of that. But before we do that, this is our... Uh, uh, with a hat tip to carry, um, uh, sort of the theme. Uh, there's several verses here, and then also I think this this uh, uh, this painting from Eisenheim, the Eisenheim altarpiece, uh, painted by Matthias Grunewald in 1515. So just before the Reformation started, you'd call this sort of a proto-Reformation uh, piece, just on the front edge of the Reformation, where John the Baptist over here with the long uh, bony finger, um, famous phrase by Karl Barth with the Latin uh, behind it of I must decrease so that he may increase the John 3.30 pointing to Christ and I say hat tip to Carrie because she pointed out I was like I was wondering why you really like this painting because I didn't show last week that he was pointing to this very large crucified Christ. Um, what's he trying to decrease because it's just the uh, uh, I had just this painting up um, where it was just the uh, uh, the long bony finger without the context of how he's been pointing to Christ. But here, pointing, having the two together, seeing the context of the whole, but then the uh, uh, letting this just wash in 
where John the Baptist holding the scripture in one hand um, and pointing with his finger to the crucified Christ that he must decrease so that Christ may increase. Increase not only in our lives, but on every page of the Bible, which John the Baptist is holding, the greatest of all who were born of a woman, as Christ said twice in the Gospels, uh, pointing away from himself, always making himself smaller and smaller and smaller. For the closer we grow to Christ, um, and especially resolving to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. And so here's Paul. Um, uh, what, what, what Paul had as, it, as, his, as his inspiration. Uh, just Christ, death, and resurrection for me, for you. That the closer we come to that, we become smaller and smaller, and he becomes larger and larger, so that he occupies our entire vista, that our entire sight is consumed only by Christ and him crucified. I resolve to know nothing and no thing except this, this massive uh, dead man who died for you and who died for me. Uh, uh, Paul would riff on this in so many other ways that uh, towards the end of his life, as he's writing his one of his young pupils, Timothy, uh, look, this saying, this saying is trustworthy and true. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the chief. Because as he... As Christ occupied his sight more and more, and he sees that he died for the sins of the world, no, for me, so occupied by this, this great exchange, this sense that, wretch that I am, who am I that Christ would do this for me? Um, uh, Paul, John the Baptist, you, me, John Newton, as we're about to look at, Thornton Wilder, we'll look at him today as well. This is our question, that you may believe that the word of the scripture, the word which is heard, that comes out and falls in our ear, would so occupy us that we would become smaller and smaller and he would become larger and larger and so occupy every part of who I am. That amazing love, how can it be that Christ Jesus would die for me? Um, and so this has been sort of our our anchor point, I guess you'd say, throughout the series um, with, this, uh, with this great sense that God must preach himself um, that uh, uh, in order to be known, that we would believe, that we would have faith, that we would be faithed, that we would be salvationed, you could also say, um, that uh, we praise the passive tense, this is happening to me, that Christ did this and it happens to me. And we'll look at the end at the, the, the Weimar altarpiece where Christ, the Son of Man, must be lifted up and the blood flowing from the side and it's falling on my head. And you can see the blood splatter on my head where it's covering me. That's the, what the artist, um, Lucas Cranick, wanted to, to communicate, that Christ Jesus died for me and his blood covers me, that I would receive faith, that I would receive salvation, that I would receive the gift of belief. Uh, amazing love. How could this be? What have I done to deserve it? Um, not one thing, and yet it's changed everything. That you would believe. Um, uh, John the Baptist came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all that would believe through him, Christ Jesus and him crucified. Or in John 6, um, again asking the question, 
all this is wonderful. What must we do then to do these works, these works of God, people would ask. Uh, and Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you would believe in him whom he has sent. That's a reception. And then in John 20, the, the, the whole genesis for this short series, um, uh, where we read through the whole book, uh, we'll end on this in a few weeks, and John gives us his purpose statement for writing. And now we're going back and seeing how he's been working towards this purpose statement. In John 20, 31, all these are written, all these stories, all these words, all this, this, uh, 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 these focused encounters with individuals uh, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. God must preach himself, because how do we believe? We believe because the word is preached. The word there, the word is gospeled. That can also be the word the, the Bible sometimes uses as preach, that the word is gospeled to us. And it hits our ear, and something happens. The dead live, the mute speak, the, uh, uh, the deaf hear, the blind see, uh, and you and I get up on a Sunday morning when we have lots of other things that we could be doing, but we're doing this because we've been gospeled, because it happens. Um, a very imperfect analogy. I was thinking about this is that this week, and then we'll move on. It's as if, and this is a, a, a C.S. Lewis had an analogous sort of thought here, so this is I'm borrowing from. It's as if we're writing a story, and we have creatures in the story, um, characters as we would call them, but we're calling them creatures because I'm the creator and this is my story and I'm creating a world and I'm wanting to call Ed and, and Sue or something like that. Um, uh, and if I want Ed to do something, to know something, to believe something, I have to give it to him. I'm the creator and he's my creature and I have to have Ed know only what I want him to know. And if I don't want him to know it, I don't let him know it. I'm in charge. And he's the receiver. Um, it's a very imperfect analogy, but this sense of creature creator that he is gifting us with belief, salvation, gospel. He's gospeling us. He's salvation, uh, salvationing us. He's believing us. Uh, faithing us is a better verb for that. Um, that imperfect analogy that God has to be preaching to us, that God preaches himself um, as he goes through. So this is a, probably what I'm going to repeat. Until we finish this, at the end of this month, because um, I don't think this word can be repeated often enough with this sense of what, what Grunewald in his altarpiece wants to communicate to us with John the Baptist pointing to um, uh, the great crucified Christ, the crucified one for us. Any thoughts there? Any? I know it's repetition, 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 but that's okay. I like it. Um, questions or comments? Yeah, Tim? Being gospel of John, yeah, it's it's clearly a gospel of the composition of That's the right. Bible. As far as the uh, right hand or left hand God, does certain excerpts or specific verses uh, are they considered more right handed or left handed? Oh, you're or great. Is the entire gospel, because it's a gospel. Yeah. Where does it fit? Thanks, Tim. And you're going back to something I did yes, last yes. fall, I think. The That's left me. hand of God, and you're good. You're really good. <laughs> Um, I'm going to, have to crawl back into that reference. Um, so the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, written by what we call the evangelist or the gospelers, um, is how we could also break that word down. Um, the evangel is the, the, the news. The euangelion is the good news or the gospel. 
So the evangelists, the ones who wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they wrote something called gospels, a literary form. Um, you have novels, you have an article, you have a gospel, and they're sort of a literary form that took shape in that very sort of unique time. Uh, you could say that those are gospels where the gospel, uh, a very particular, the definite article, the, the gospel, um, the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, the gospel where Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that Christ Jesus uh, died for you, um, uh, the gospel which is the saving power of God into all who believe. And so that's what the gospel is, this sense of the news more than information, but it starts with information that Christ Jesus, a man, died for sinners, of which I am the chief, and there are you too. But then more than that, and I think this is often where we fall short, that it's not just news in the same way that uh, you know the Lisbon earthquake in 18-whatever was news. It was an historical event. It happened. Well, the gospel is also power, for this is the power of God unto salvation, or it is the power of God for all who are being saved, um, but it's foolishness to all who are perishing. So the news, which is unique because it's also power, and so when it's preached, when God preaches himself and it falls on the ear, that shows up sometimes as a left-handed work where you're expecting one thing, uh, but out of the blue, from left field, using God's left hand, he does something completely unexpected. Exhibit A, uh, death, defeat, uh, Satan's victory, the victory of humanity over and against uh, or of power over and against the powerless are all the ways that the cross is sometimes read and which from any reasonable, as it were, uh, meaning just strictly speaking our, our human finite brains, you would look at this as a defeat. Uh, and yet the power of God, his left-handedness, he's working beneath the opposite, as Luther would call it, um, where here's the cross, and you would expect defeat, and the opposite is happening. You would expect death, and the opposite is happening. And so there's victory and life, and you would expect uh, the triumph of whoever it is, Rome or the Jews, or and that I mean that as any sort of anti-Semitic. I mean, just that's a reference that John uses a lot. It's important to say this. That is not a complete statement for everything. When John refers to the Jews, he's speaking really to the Jewish leaders, shorthand to the Jewish leaders known at the time. They have names like Nicodemus was one of them. Um, and so when he speaks of the Jews, most of the time that's what he's speaking as. And so it's the, the cabinet that was in power at the time. You would expect, are they the victors? And he wants to say no. And the left hand of God is unworking the things which are apparent. And that's the gospel, the power of God, which gives belief and faith and hope and health and healing. That's a good question. Um, Let's move on. Yeah, sure, Kate. I've never heard the word gospel used as a verb. Yeah, we need to do that more often. So um, certainly welcome to do it. Um, we should, in the class right now, we take a tour of the nave. Um, Frank Limehouse put in the pulpit. It's right there on the right. Some of y'all have seen it. Um, uh, quote from 1 Corinthians 7, I think it is. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, it says. Um, uh, I don't know Greek that well, and I want to Greek out, as they say. Um, but that's a verb. Woe to me if I do not gospel. 
um, euangelizo. Um, euangelion is a noun. Euangelizo is a verb. That's why Greek is an interesting language. And we have some of that, too, where you can have a, a nominal form or a verbal form of a word. I'm trying to think of what one would be. Um, what's that? Cake. 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 Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. Great. Um, so we have some analogies there. Uh, but to, to gospel somebody, um, if I do not gospel, if I do not preach, if I do not let the word of the gospel um, be verbed and fall out there and do something, um, I may start using it as a verb more because I think it's important to say, I want to gospel you right now and just smear the balm of Gilead in your ears and heal the sin-sick soul. I mean, that's where it becomes more active, where we're the recipient and he and, and he's the actor and it's something that's happening to us. Um, so I'm in. Yeah, go ahead. Believe it or not, this question will circle back around Good. to the theme of yep. so that you yep. might yep. believe. Yep. Yep. Uh, you, you were just speaking of God's left hand, and you used the word unexpected. So yep. He did the unexpected, counterintuitive, and it, it almost sounds sacrilegious to use other words that so I'll attribute them to somebody That's else. all right. That's all right. Yep. <laughs> like, uh, so Charlie once said. Fred so. Bigner, Yep. Uh, speaks of this as being preposterous. That's right. Outrageous. It's just unbelievable. <laughs> so that you may believe. So you That's unbelievable that. so that you may believe. What, yeah. what I think he's saying when he uses those kind of those are strong words. Yep. Yep. Uh, I think what he's trying to say is we as human beings or are quite naturally going to be faced with doubt every now and then. It's just how could this be? It's just outrageous. It's, and, and then you you know have to work your way back around through the gospel and the message that you're giving us over this series. I'm in. I'm in. Uh, but it's it's actually I think those words are consistent with what you absolutely said, the, the unexpected. Um. The Bible itself, Paul in several places, calls it the scandal, the scandal on. And it has all, we can translate it as scandal, but it's all those words that you and Beekner are using. Preposterous, unbelievable, um, ridiculous, even offensive. I mean, it's that kind of, it just drips with connotations. And so now, I mean, where does that leave us? I mean, at a real level, forgive me if I cry, um, I mean, some of us, you sat with people who, as they die, in the moment they take their last breath. And that's where this hits the rubber. That's where the rubber hits the road, where all this comes down to this scandal, this preposterous, this offensive word that you're going to tell me, that you, Gail, are going to tell me that this is not the end, that this death that I'm witnessing of this person that I'm loving or my very own is in fact not the end but the beginning, that the glorified life is about to go where... Where this now this shell, this tent, as Paul would call it, is now being uh, sloughed off, and a house, or, or as John would call it, in my father's house there are many rooms, and I'm going to occupy one of those rooms, and it's going to be my permanent address, and I'm going to say, yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, there's something really offensive about that. Where for those who haven't been gifted faith, and that's why I say that so humbly, you know, this what did I do? to be given this gift of belief, of faith, of salvation, of gospel, being gospeled, 
and I cry out absolutely nothing. And my life is spent then in gratitude for having this gift to know that death is not the enemy. Death is always the enemy. Death is no longer the end. That where, O oh, death, is thy victory. Where, O oh, death, is thy sting. Um, uh, that Christ Jesus has defeated death through his death so that now all that should believe shall not perish but have everlasting life. Um, so I think death is usually a place where it meets the greatest value in some ways for us. If you're looking for, you know, you know how is this applicable, Gil? Where is this practical? It's like, well, each one of you are going to die. <laughs> and so am I. Um, and in some ways, our lives are spent so that we may die well. I think that's true. I think that's one of the things that I'm certainly sort of centering in my middle age more and more uh, to my, what I've been given to do here. This church that I love is to help people die well. I think that's true. Um, and it's, it's ridiculous or it's incredible. And it's both at the same time. Um, so let's get into John 5. We're going to find lots of good places for this. Um, uh, this is the story we looked at last week or began to, and this is just a something to look at. I don't know a whole lot about Robert Bateman, an English uh, painter from the latter half of the 19th century. Just the, the, the going down into the, the pool of, of uh, uh, Bethesda. Um, let me read it, and then we'll come back and I'll say a little bit about different parts of the story, and then we'll uh, look at John Newton and close with Thornton Wilder. I'm going to make sure we do that today. Um, so this healing at the pool of the, uh, uh, on a Sabbath day. We read this too quickly last week, so I wanted to go back. Um, it's a great story. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus, we don't know which one. And then Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Seems like he's probably alone. Most of the time, he's with his disciples. But in this instance, uh, uh, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem by himself. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which means house of mercy which has five Ruth colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So I'll stop and make some comments along the way. It's interesting where the verb tense here changes. Um, this really lends itself to historical validity because we talk a little bit about um, the reliability of the New Testament and some of those questions uh, where he shifts from telling a past tense narrative. Um, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up and suddenly it shifts, and it's very specific. Now there is, in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five Ruth colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. In other words, he's saying, like, you know this. <laughs> You're reading it. You know up in the, the near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem where there's five Ruth colonnades? Y'all have been there. You know this place. He's putting it out just to talk to his hearers, his readers, in the present tense saying that's where this happened. Some people will try to read into it um, what's called the historical press, uh, present, um, but it doesn't fit. It'd be similar to an almost at the same, it's crazy that it's been this long now, but almost the same length of time as 9-11 is to us now. It's as if I'd be talking in the past tense and suddenly start talking about the Twin Towers in the present tense, as if it's like an historical present. Now there is in New York two towers, the twin towers, which are each so many stories high and it's across the street from so-and-so and so-and-so. And then I go back to the, uh, the, the chronology that's being recorded in the past tense. It doesn't fit. 
And they're saying, and they thought for years, well, this is a place where the New Testament's not reliable because we hadn't found this. And then about, I think it was 1940-something, they found it. And you can go visit it. And it's got five pillars where it seems like the colonnades were, and it fits in what used to be the Sheep Gate on the north end of Jerusalem. And you can go see this sort of thing. And, and I was like, yep, that's where it is, and right there. And there's just another drip to say that these are... Um, good question, Tim, nice, nice segue that the Gospels, Matt, uh, the, 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 the chronology and the, uh, uh, the biography, as it were, of Jesus of Nazareth have more historical reliability than not. By far, um, they lend itself to uh, the same sort of historical scrutiny, much, much, much more so than we would give to, say, Julius Caesar. He's one that's often used as a comparison. We've got much more evidence to support the sense that Jesus, the things that are described in the Gospels happened than we do uh, to believe that somebody named Julius Caesar governed the Roman Empire at a certain time and a certain date. So that's another part. So there was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time. And he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, uh, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. So a couple of quick things. Um, uh, staying in that vein about historical reliability, etc. Some of y'all are looking at a Bible. Um, uh, it's a fun little trick to play in your small groups. And I say, let's turn and look at John 5, 4. And they'll look in there and it's not there. <laughs> You're like, wait a minute, what happened? It goes from John 5, 3 to John 5, 5. And then it has a little numeric sort of superscript. Uh, most of the versions, King James will have it in there, by the way. The other, the newer versions don't have a superscript, where it'll say some of the later manuscripts include, and it'll say verse 4, uh, uh, the blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So what's going on there? Let me see if I can do this quickly, because this is just kind of, Good to know, because we talk about the Bible all the time. And you actually like this is a reliable. It's got macro stability uh, with some micro fluidity. That's a phrase that's often used. Um, we don't have any of the original copies, uh, the first editions, as it were, of any of the New Testament or Old Testament texts. What are called the autographs in most instances. Uh, so like a first edition of William Faulkner's Sound in the Fury, you can find that. Or even probably with somebody like Faulkner, uh, you know, just his notebooks where he was sort of wrote it out the first time longhand. Or whatever. We don't have any of those. Um, uh, what we have are copies of the original autographs, which are often called the manuscripts, um, the extant manuscripts. The first ones begin to appear, um, uh, or they date back to, I think, now I'm out of my league, I think it's the late 70s or early 80s. And it's in, uh, I think, the f 400 um, or so. We have the, the first whole New Testament as we now know it from uh, Mark through Revelation. Uh, that's important. Why? Uh, because what we have are thousands of copies, 
thousands of copies of these original autographs. Uh, and they're going to have minor variations. That's the microfluidity, as it's called, uh, where most of them are what you call copy, um, uh, copy errors. Because it's somebody, this is where you read about the scribes and the Pharisees, and it's the scribes who are taking, the, say, the, the, uh, the scroll that contains Isaiah, and they're writing it out. They're just going you know, point to point to point to point to point. Um, that was what monks did for thousands of years before the printing press, is they were responsible actually for the transmission that went through. And so we have, in macro stability but microfluidity, certain errors, the equivalent of an apostrophe, in, like a, instead of apostrophe S, it'd be an Esther apostrophe or an apostrophe that's left out. Um, or in a lot of instances, uh, a similar thing, not really, but you know, this might give you the flavor. If you read a book published in London, and they spell color, C-L-O-U-R. But here, you know, Bantam and Sons, it's published in New York, and it's C-L-O-R, because you have the English, you have the United Kingdom spelling, you have an American. It's those kind of errors, with a very few exceptions. And you have one here in John 5, you have another one in John 8, you have another one in Mark 16, uh, but we're upfront about it. All the Bibles, it's not like this is secret. You look down, and if you start reading your footnotes, it'll say some editions omit, or some later editions include, and it'll have all, and some will say uh, 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 small little footnotes, some uh, uh, omit the word his, or whatever else. Uh, macro stability, but micro fluidity, with these small pieces that are sometimes not included in the earlier manuscripts, but are probably included later. This is probably a later edition. Why do we know that? Because, and I say it didn't happen, but we have verse 7, which is in all the manuscripts. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. You're like, what in the world does that have to do with anything that, that this guy's waiting around for the water to be stirred up? And they had to go back and add in this tradition uh, that existed that an angel would come down periodically to the pool and stir the waters and the first one in the water afterwards would be healed. And so they glossed it, as it were, and they added that. That's probably the one that's least counted amongst uh, uh, New Testament folk. But it doesn't change any doctrine, doesn't change any dogma, doesn't change any sort of structure of belief um, uh, as a later addition, but it just kind of helps explain verse 7 by adding verse 4. And so now you got something to talk about at small group on Wednesday as you go back into that. Um, Who's they Oh, who put it together? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Mark Gentilette just wrote the book on this called Reading Scripture Canonically, those that form the canon of Scripture, uh, which would be the councils um, that all started to occur in sort of the 200s and 300s as the church began to really sort of come together uh, and they had the collected writings of what we call the Old Testament, but now the New Testament um, had been formed and they were starting to say, okay, we're going to sort of have an apostolic uh, criterion, which means sort of one generation removed and it's written by somebody who actually knew Jesus um, as opposed to, say, the Gospel of Thomas and some other things. I don't know if we want to go off here too far, but the canon of Scripture unlike the Koran, uh, for, for Christians, wasn't just sort of downloaded and said, here, I want you to have this. There was a, there was a process to all that um, that's sometimes used against it. So, well, it's just a product of the church or it's a product of, of, uh, of men. 
Uh, and you would say, no, not, not, not so much, but certainly it's creaturely in as much as it was historically dated and driven and formed, and that actually lends to its credibility. Um, yeah, Jane. One thing I always think about when that situation might come up or someone explains or was not really explained, who was writing knew that the people they were writing for That's right. knew. knew. That's right. That's right. And so they didn't need the ignorant people like me that I go, well, yep. you know, I mean, that even to me verifies the writing. Yep. And this text has been scrutinized by far more than any other text in the history of the world. That's, that's not a hyperbole, hyperbolic statement. Um, it's been attempted to be disproven as much as it could be, and, it's, and, and that apostolic uh, criterion has been applied, and, uh, and it's not been found wanting yet. Um, so let's move on. So here's the, this healing on the pool of the Sabbath. Uh, I'm still not going to get where I wanted to go. Um, how do we make sense of this? Um, here's the hymn by uh, John Newton that I, I ran across last week and wanted to come back to. And I think this is that question that a lot of us, it's a vexing question. Um, why do I believe and my brother doesn't? Um, or what about my dad? What about my, my son? Um, what about so-and-so? I think John Newton wants to get here, and it's all around that question, do you want to be healed? And I think it's important that we go back and we think, okay, what, what happens when we're gospeled, when there's a verb, uh, and we are turned, that's repentance, remember, um, from one to another. And we don't do it, we're turned, as it were, by the hand of God, uh, the way it's often described, Ezekiel probably best, uh, we're taken, our old heart is taken out, and our new heart is placed in. And that's the process of being turned from an old to a new. And so this sense of being turned or being taken, uh, the old taken and the new placed, that's what's key. None of us give ourselves a new heart. None of us can perform auto heart surgery. Or that's not happened yet, at least that I know of. Uh, It has to be done to us. And that's the key aspect in all this, which is both offensive but also to me, a freeing word, uh, where John Newton has this idea where the, the waters of this pool, uh, the balm of Gilead is a great place. I mean, Newton's, in fact, I think coined this idea of the sin-sick soul, which then uh, the, the spiritual that emerged in, in the American South in the 19th century uh, uh, you know, picked up on that phrase, there's a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. It's a great, to my mind, evocative phrase uh, to talk about our core condition and our core need. The waters of Bethesda's pool, um, where the invalid of 38 years, when he falls in and he's healed um, uh, in the story that we're about to read, this is the gospel. It's the waters of the gospel. When we're thrown into the gospel, a little bit of a baptism image if you want it, and the old is drowned and the new emerges. Um, the old heart of stone is, uh, is taken out and a new heart of flesh is placed in that's the image I think that Newton wants to have when he speaks of here at Bethesda's pool, the poor, the withered, halt and blind, with waiting hearts, expect a cure, and free admittance find. So I hope we find ourselves or somebody else that we're loving uh, and maybe we're praying for right now in these words. Here streams of wondrous virtue flow to heal a sin-sick soul, to wash the filthy, filthy white as snow, and make the wounded whole. The dumb break forth in songs of praise. 
the blind their sight receive. The cripple runs in wisdom's ways, the dead revive and live. So he takes on all this, this gospel work uh, personified, as it were, in the waters of this pool, that the waters can wash away the sickness of our souls and make the filthy clean. But then Newton, over here on the right hand, in the, in the fifth verse, fifth, sixth, and seventh stanzas, squares up to this vexing question, but what about those that don't believe? What about those who, who it seems, at least, from the right hand of God, uh, it, it's not breaking through? Their old heart of stone, calcified, stuck, uh, they remain in that spiritual stupor. And yet numbers daily near them lie, in these, near these waters, uh, who meet with no relief, with life in view. They pine and die in helpless, hopeless unbelief. And so we can remember in your mind's eye, if you've been here the last few weeks, when we looked at um, John 3 in that Weimar altarpiece, and there in the background there's those snakes on a pole from Numbers um, who in view of their salvation still writhe on the ground. And it's as if they can't see, still stuck in that spiritual blindness. With life in view, they pine and die in hopeless unbelief. Tis strange they should refuse to bathe and yet frequent the pool. But none can even wish for faith while love of sin bears rule. Satan, their consciences has sealed and stupefied their thought. For were they willing to be healed, the cure would soon be wrought. And so he squares it right up there in that last line. Very troubling. For were they willing to be healed, the cure would soon be wrought. And here's the thing. Were they willing? But remember, who among us gives ourselves a new heart? It's not as if I can make myself will something. There is no auto-willing. There is no auto uh, where I can self-generate this, this will to belief, this will to salvation, this will to be gospeled. It has to be done to me. Um, what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. So the issue is always the heart. And so that's the prayer where he comes here in this last stanza uh, where John Newton's prayer, I think, is a good prayer. Do thou, thou, thou is an old phrase. John Newton, when he used that as a second person familiar, which sounds very foreign to us when we say these thy gifts of creatures. It's actually the, the, the familiar, uh, I shouldn't have thought coming to this. It's the, it's the, it's the close, it connotes the close familiar place of, uh, of thou. So do thou, dear Savior, interpose, put yourself between here and there and bring it together. Do thou, dear Savior, interpose, their stubborn wills constrain, or else to them the water flows and grace is preached in vain. And so Newton squares it up in a way that I think is proper, right, and good. He says, Lord, you've promised where this, how this plays out in real time, we don't know. But for this person that I'm praying for, whether it's yourself or somebody that you love or just the world, you place, the, you place, you place that action where? Squarely on the shoulders of God. Do thou, dear Savior, interpose their stubborn wills constrain, or else to them the water flows and grace is preached in vain. You have to do it, God. You have to do this work. You have to turn their hearts. You have to turn their minds. You have to so change their wills 
that they'd be overcome with your gospel. You have to gospel them. We cannot. Um, and I think Newton wants to put that there. And that's where we are in um, the angel that troubled the water. So I'm at least let you take things home uh, uh, as we pass that around. Thornton Wilder, I'm going to do this really quickly because um, we can at least do part of this. American playwright and author, Our Town and some others, he wrote these three-minute plays for three people. Um, he kind of made up a genre. and He said, I like these, and he wrote about 15 of them. This is its most famous, uh, uh, where there's a nice little quote from it, where he goes back and, and hearing the gloss, because he would have been reading the King James, which does have John 5, 4 in it, that the angel comes down and troubles the water and stirs it up. We're here, and you can read this on your own, uh, where there's the, the scene of, of a newcomer, which is a physician who outwardly is whole and healthy and well, but inwardly, we don't know what it is, he's vexed with a, a sin sickness, uh, a remorse, a regret, an inner disposition of sadness or depression, melancholy, or maybe it's a sin that he committed and there's a guilt that he's carrying. We don't know what it is but it's definitely inward and non-visible. And he comes to the pool for healing. But the invalid, the one that we hear about, the 38 years, uh, takes great umbrage at him. He says, why are you here? You're healthy and well. You're a physician for crying out loud. You, you're out there. You saw my son once. You're up there in the real world walking around. Don't come down here and waste a cure on you. So you can read all that, but I'm going to go back to the... Um, uh, about halfway down uh, the second page where it says the angel without turning makes himself apparent to the newcomer and addresses him. Do y'all see that? Um, it says, draw back physician. This moment is not for you. The angel's about to stir the water. Uh, and the newcomer, the physician, the wounded, the, 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 the one who's wounded inside in an invisible way, Angelic visitor, I pray thee, listen to my prayer. The healing is not for you, the newcomer. Surely, surely, the angels are wise. Surely, O prince, you are not deceived by my apparent wholeness. Your eyes can see the nets in which my wings are caught. The sin in which all my endeavors sink half performed cannot be concealed from you. And the angel says, I know. The newcomer, it is no shame to boast to an angel of what I might yet do in love's service were I but freed from this bondage. And the invalid says, surely the water is stirring strange today. Surely I shall be made whole. And the angel says, I must make haste. Already the sky is afire with the gathering host, for it is the hour of the new song among us. The earth itself feels the preparation in the skies and the attempts its hymn, and attempts its hymn. Children born in this hour spend all their lives in a sharper longing for the perfection that awaits them. And the physician, oh, in such an hour I was born, and doubly fearful to me is the flaw in my heart. Must I drag my shame, prince and singer, all my days, more bowed than my neighbor? And the angel stands with a moment of silence. And he says this. These are the famous lines. Without your wound, where would your power be? It is your very remorse that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children on earth as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love's service, only the wounded soldiers can serve. Draw back. 
Then the angel swiftly kneels and draws his finger through the water. The pool is presently astir with running ripples. The increase in a divine wind strikes the gay surface. The waves are flung upon the steps, and the mistaken man, the invalid, casts himself into the pool. The whole company lurches, rolls, or hobbles in. The servants rush in from the porch, turmoil. Finally, and no longer mistaken invalid, emerges and leaps joyfully up the steps. The rest, coughing and sighing, follow him. The angel smiles for a moment and disappears. And now the healed man goes to the physician. Look, my hand is as new as a child's. Glory be to God, I have begun again. May you be next, my brother, but come with me first. An hour only to my home. My son is lost in dark thoughts. I, I do not understand him. And only you have ever lifted his mood. Only an hour. My daughter, since her child has died, sits in the shadow. She will not listen to us. Dot, 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 dot. It's a great story. Commend it to you to your afternoon repose. So let me pray. Lord, um, take these words humbly offered, offered and gospel them to us. Let them fall on our ears uh, and interpose yourself uh, between those. Uh, interpose yourself to those that we love who, uh, who we pray for would know the joy of your salvation. Come, Lord, and, uh, uh, and, and script uh, in your, uh, your wounded healers in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.